Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are obviously looking for your support. The Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors, and relies entirely on you, dear listeners, to keep the show on the road. There's a link right there in the podcast. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. All I'm asking you to do is click that link while you're listening and give us the price of a fancy cup of coffee. And in exchange, you'll get access to all of our back catalogue and all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed, including lots of exclusives, all plea free. If you are a patron and you're listening to this, please stop. Get your private RSS feed and then you don't have to listen to me beg for support. We've also put together a live podcast this Wednesday evening online on Where Do We Go? Following the government's cruel decision to lift the eviction ban. Uh, The link for that is out to patrons now. So if you want to refresh your feeds or look in your notifications, you should have the link there. Please register in advance. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and as promised, we are back covering housing and we're going to look through it from the prism of the UK but before we get there uh, I know you're all aware the eviction ban is lifting you're all aware what's been what's been happening uh, I know Rory has been working hard on the uplift the uplift link to the Rory's been working on the petition to get you all to sign it to say that we want to keep the eviction ban and it's nice and simple it'll be in this podcast so all you have to do is click and add your name add your email address more importantly, if, if you can, I'd ask you to uh, email your local TDs because that's the thing that really makes a difference. Um, if you're getting in touch with your local TD, put that pressure locally. That's where that's where the change goes. We've seen it when it was in the mother and baby homes when they wanted to seal the records. What really they, what they responded to was public pressure, particularly your own TD. If they know that your vote, they need your vote. Well, then that's the issue. Anyway, as I said, we are delighted uh, to be back. Oh. I should also wish my colleague Martin uh, the best. He's in with his surgeon today. So if, you, if you're if uh, you talking to him later, if you hear from him later, ask him how he got on because uh, 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 we're all hopeful that this uh, this will be the, the, the part of the, the solution to his ongoing health problems. Anyway, as I said, we are delighted to be joined on the podcast by independent housing consultant Toby Lloyd, who is in Dublin for the TUD, the TUD Real Estate Student Awards and Expert Talks evening in conjunction with our friend uh, Lorcan Sir. Toby, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me. No, uh, honestly, it's 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 unbelievable to to say that when we were downstairs, you said you didn't know as much about the Irish housing system as you do about obviously the UK system. And I think everything I've read that you've done, a lot of it we could just lift and <laughs> move over here, unfortunately. But if listeners aren't aware of you, I suppose we can start at like what where who are you what was what drives you to continue to do this for over a decade now yes yeah, so it's more like two decades i've been working on housing um originally it was because um i was i was a kind of young radical out of university and thought i'd spend my life trying to you know solve the really big problems of the world like climate change and um you know, developing world poverty and global injustices and i spent a while trying to do that sort of stuff and realized it was just really difficult yeah. <laughs> um, and uh and i was never going to get anywhere with it so i ended up focusing on a much more kind of i thought narrow small simple parochial issue of like well i can at least fix you know the housing problem in london i mean that, that that's got to be tractable and uh 20 years later you know it's uh, got much much worse and i've got nowhere well <laughs> <laughs> lorcan saw is laughing here folks but we'll, we'll just before we say that you got nowhere 
you didn't go nowhere. You went all over the place. Okay, you've 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 had a, a, a varied different roles to try and do this. I suppose from a listener's point of view, the most interesting one will be when uh, how come someone who, as you just said it, has these uh, this worldview of you know lifting the, the rising tide lifts all boats, helping one another, how you know get along, uh, fixing things, left leaning. I put it right. If we're going to say it that way. And you ended up yet in, in Theresa May's government when she was in Downing Street number 10. How does that happen? Well, yeah, it was, um, it was a surprise to me. It was a surprise to everyone, frankly. Um, I was, I was head of policy at Shelter, which mm. is the uh, housing charity in the UK, um, leading a lot of campaigning work, trying to address homelessness and trying to get more homes built. And, you know, we did quite well. It's quite a big organization, Shelter. It's got, it's quite well resourced. It's got a big voice. We had a really kind of big run up to the 2015 general election and we got housing right up there and we spent a lot on advertising and polling. You know, we really thought we were doing a, doing a good job of getting the housing issue up the agenda. Um, and it, and it worked. You know, it was, it was the voters said it was, the, it was the top, top four issue, um, which was, uh, you know, with it within our, our target. And as a result, we then got a new government in determined to fix housing and they promptly introduced the worst housing act of my lifetime, um, which kind of convinced me that it wasn't enough to get your issue up the agenda. You've also got to get the, the right ideas into the right places. Mm. So then spent the next couple of years um, trying to change this Shelter's message. Second. So this was, Dave, this was the David Cameron's, Cameron's government. This is when he and what um, was the worst? And what was the worst thing they did? Uh, there was a whole bunch of terrible ideas in that in that act. Unfortunately, it never came to anything because um, his uh, his government promptly fell over the you know the, the Brexit referendum the following year, and you know we've basically been living with the political chaos ever since. But that act included things like they were going to have another yet another go at trying to force the right to buy onto housing association mm. um, stock, and they basically bullied all the housing associations to sign up to it. They were going to fund it by um, basically stealing the last remaining properties off councils and flogging them off. On, on the open market uh there were some pretty bad planning reforms in there as well they had um another half yet another half-baked idea for um kind of starter homes um low low-cost home ownership yeah it was full it was full of terrible ideas basically um mm. none of which were ever going to work uh, uh but yeah it convinced me that we that we needed as a as a basically left-wing kind of campaigning organization we needed to do a bit better at talking to conservatives mm. that we were, you know, we were we were missing a trick here yeah. especially as they just won yet another election and looked like they were going to be in power for you know the foreseeable future um and so i spent a long time just repositioning shelter's message and the, the it was actually prince charles who gave me that gave me the insight okay. bizarrely um <laughs> you know because prince, you, know, you want to hear charles, that on this podcast very often yeah, folks? Well, <laughs> no i you know it was, it was a surprise to me too but um prince charles as he, as he then was king charles is now as you know as a, as a bit of an obsession with um traditional architecture yes so much so he's, you know, he's built his own town um poundbury which uh you know and, and as, as as head of a uh, of a housing charity he invited me to this event at poundbury which was i mean and it's a bizarre place in some ways it feels very odd just because it looks so kind of um kind of, yeah, it's, it's fake, kind of well can, yeah because it's kind of fake old but it does work it really works people love it there it's incredible it's incredibly popular mm. um and it doesn't just work in terms of like the market it works economically it has the highest jobs density of any town okay you know b because it's built that way it's, you know they have most people who there's on a third of the, the people who live there work in the town which is you know no small town in in, in england has that kind of metrics it's, it's certainly not new new build developments mm. so, you know most most towns of that size would be, would be built by a uh, private developer you'd be lucky to have a corner shop in it 
Mm. You know, and well, actually, what size is Poundry? How many people are? are, are oh, it's, it's like kind of it's like ten thousand or something. It's not yeah. that big, well, it's but big. it feels. In large context, it's big. But it, yeah. but, it, but it feels like a really area. proper place. And I say, I mean, if it, if that was a commercial developer, they would it would just be a soulless estate. And as it is, mm. it's a genuine town. Yeah, sure, it's got its architectural oddnesses about it, but um, but actually, it works. People mm. love it. Mm. And if you go there with Prince Charles, he he walks around the town, and and, and people come out of their of their houses and kind of presented with handmade gifts and you know he says thank you and passes it on to a flunky and the kind of procession moves on it's like i mean it is like a you know a feudal lord going around his manor but um but that aside leaving the leaving the imperial the imperialism outside, yeah well quite so you know uh but, but, but following that he, he invited me to this um event he was having at, at, the, at the palace where there were all of these incredibly kind of establishment organizations, mm. uh, the National Trust, the Country Land and Business Association, mm. you know, kind of the hunting, shooting and fishing lobby. You know, I felt really out of place. Oh, yeah. They're really quite awkward as this kind of lefty urban housing type. But the weird thing was they were all saying the same thing as shelter. Mm. Housing market's broken. No one can afford to live in our villages anymore. We reckon it's to do with the way the development system works. Land ownership's messed up. You know, it was essentially exactly the same message that I've been banging on about from Shelter's point of view. Mm. And yet we kind of hadn't noticed that we were saying the same thing. Mm. Um, and in fact, when we tried to say this to, conserv- to conservatives, they're just, you know, their eyes glazed over and they, they stopped listening to us. So I just tried something out. And at the next time I went to the Conservative Party conference and did our usual kind of fringe event where we try and persuade conservatives to listen to Shelter, I just changed the pictures. Yeah. So instead of having lots of pictures of kind of concrete tower blocks with, um, you know, urban populations in them, which is generally what Shelter's kind of output yeah, yeah. looked like, I just used pictures of Prince Charles's developments. Right. And same, same lefty analysis, you know, yeah. graphs, numbers, homelessness. But just pictures of his developments. Yeah. And I had queues of Tory MPs afterwards asking me, you know, how can we get more social housing built in Buckinghamshire and stuff? Well. And I made me think, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. It's just how have we been so stupid as a movement that, that well, we, class consciousness doesn't work both ways sometimes. Yeah. Well, quite, quite. That, that, you know, Shelter's not there to defend a particular style of architecture. It has no views on architecture, bluntly. Mm. Right. And yet, you know, we've, we've, we've allowed ourselves to kind of be the stereotype that the other side thinks. Yeah. And as a result, they don't listen to us. Mm. You know? But you, but yet you have, then you take that step forward. You then, I suppose, uh, I, I, I you know, we were going to be really blunt about it. You, you then decide to go into, uh, you know, thinking I can change this from the inside. Well, so this is the thing. So, so yeah. So I, I, I repackaged all of, um, Shelter's kind of policy message. I say I didn't change the message, it just mm. changed the, the, the packaging. And it worked so well that the, 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 the new, the, the new um, at this point, you know, the government was falling every five minutes. We had a, Theresa May had had a disastrous election and replaced her entire team. Mm. And the new number 10 team liked this message so much that they asked me to, to go and be a special advisor there. And I, I did agonize about it for a bit and then, mm. and then realized, what am I even agonizing about? I've spent five years kind of shouting at the government, demanding that they listen to me. And they now say they want to listen. Mm. Of, course, of course you got it, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I went into um, number 10 and spent a, a very interesting 14 months in the heart of the Tory government. I always love interesting Larkin to you. It's always that word that, that you can just interpret it whatever way you choose to. <laughs> <laughs> Scary, interesting. Exactly. What is it like in 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 where where was your office? Are you actually based in number ten, or are you based yep. somewhere else? Or? Yeah, it was. I was actually based in number ten, and it is and it is the bizarrest place to work because not only do you have to go through that door, just the, you know, mm. that's that's your front door every morning. Um, Step over the cat on the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you know, it's it's a badly built. 18th century townhouse that's been kind of awkwardly knocked together with the ones next door to make a kind of rabbit warren of of badly 
designed offices. So, mm. you know, my, my office was essentially you know, an old servant's bedroom or whatever with like six desks awkwardly fitting into it that, that clearly yeah, well, it wasn't designed for. But, so it, it's, but, it's deeply dysfunctional as, a, as an office building. But, yeah, the, but, yeah. but the ambition going in there. So you had all these ambitions mm. in shelter. I'm guessing you kind of tried to map them across into. Well, I mean, there was there's one I saw was one of the things like was ending rough sleeping was a kind of, was was it was an ambition. Um, you know, I, I no, it it's if anything, it has not worked. No, I you know like like start was saying, I I wouldn't claim to fix it all. Uh, yeah. And I realized pretty quickly that my original intention is to go in and kind of spend 10 years reforming the deep structures of mm. the land market and, and the banking system. And yeah, that was clearly not, that was not on the cards. This was a government that at the time I actually surprised it lasted as long as it did. It lasted another 14 months from that point, but it, you know, it could have, it could have fallen at any moment. Um, and I was just one person with without many friends. You know, but, in how a, did in the a, rest of the, the the cabinet team or the, or the civil service mm. there react to somebody like you coming into what is a very yeah. whether there's a Tories or Labour yeah. in power? It's still a very conservative kind of structure. Yeah. How did they kind of react to to, to you coming in as a kind of an urban lefty? Yeah, they, they were a bit nonplussed. Some of them, to mm. be fair, um, I a lot of them quite liked it actually because um, you know they quite liked having someone who who wasn't just a you know a political party animal but um but you know somebody you knew the subject area mm -hmm. so the civil servants quite quite mm -hmm. liked him in there but they didn't quite know what to do with me because they didn't they didn't really know how much authority yes i really spoke with can, can yeah, i really I, speak with the prime minister are you sure the prime minister thinks that toby it's like, yeah yeah definitely definitely yeah that's a real because you made that point to us recently when we spoke about the ukrainian refugee crisis here that's mm -hmm. unfortunately sometimes when we hear our minister speak he needs the authority of yeah. Yeah. the people above him, and it just doesn't feel like that's actually they're banging a desk in, in his in his you know to support him in some of the things that can be done. So when you when you come mm. up against that and you're 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 trying to you know say to people you know a this is the smarter thing to do this is the, you know it's it, it'll mm. reduce inequality um give people mm. security actually be good for the economy then you know all of these yeah. were those arguments does people just enjoy having the arguments and then just go that's grand we've had the debate but we're going to keep doing what we've always been doing well, what what i discovered was that Firstly, yeah, there was no, there was no time, space, or kind of political capital to really deep, big structural reform. That was not going to happen. But there's loads of things you can do that just kind of quick, mm. quick, small changes that'll make a difference. I just focused on them. But then I also discovered that because it was a, it was, I mean, there was so much political chaos. You know, this was you know, yeah, all yeah. of the Brexit negotiations. It was just, it was just I'm, abject chaos. The government had no time to think about anything else. Mm. And weirdly, that meant that everyone just left me alone. And every now and again, there'd be kind of once a month or something, there'd be kind of quick, we've got to do something on the domestic agenda. We can't just be, you know, it's 99% Brexit for that one, one percent of, of the, of the, the news agenda for the government's legacy. Yeah. Can we do something on housing? Have you got anything? And so at that point, I'd say, yeah, do that. And, and they wouldn't. You know, there'd be no scrutiny. They would, yeah. <laughs> they they so, wouldn't so, even so, check that this was really kind of this was part of their manifesto mm -hmm. or they were just like, yeah, all right, fine. So it was actually an oddly freeing environment for getting kind of quite interesting po positive um housing policies through because they were desperate yeah I, um and yet we now we fast forward the thing i think it was mm. i think it was yourself who wrote recently that you know uh, the uk needs to wean itself off the idea of ever increasing uh property prices 
And, you know, we were sitting in, in a, a house that was bought at the top of our, of our before our last crash. Yeah. Uh, we spoke to uh, a, a, an economist yesterday who said we're now, you know, it's like Groundhog Day, except we're in a 15 year, <laughs> 15 year wash, rinse, repeat cycle. And yet in the UK now, property prices are coming down marginally. Mm-hmm. And yet, but, but rents are still unattainable for yep. the average the average wage and going up fast and going up fast and and the financialization of property has mm-hmm. continued at pace mm-hmm. what are the like what are the actions that that the government could have taken or should have taken well yeah and you know this this is this, this is the stuff I'm I'm still still working on now but I and mean, ultimately a housing market correction is a big opportunity right? and mm. and what we generally find in both countries is that um when when house prices fall governments panic and quickly try and reflate the bubble as fast as possible because they think that somehow that will you know appease voters help the economy and it's you know we, we know we know the disastrous consequences of ever rising house prices unaffordability the economic distortion the the fragility it, it bakes into the economy because suddenly everyone's over indebted and everyone's dependent on interest rates staying down and you know, it makes everything extremely and, and, uh, and we have this vulnerable. again huge sense yeah. that if, if there's literally yeah. property is is central to everything like this is what's happened with yeah. what I should have really started there. That idea where you said that the obsession was with making people property owners rather mm-hmm. than actually, you know, in, with living within a society because we, we've then said everybody's like, what is the statistic, Lorcan? We're all supposed to be worth 200 grand. Which, in Ireland, we're, uh, the average person, everybody, every man, mm. maybe it's worth 200,000 and two thirds of that is basically our housing. Yeah. So there's a, there is a kind of, it's not just a, a you know, anti-imperialist kind of obsession with home ownership. There's a financial Mm. pragmatic imperative yeah well, imperative and and, 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 and this is the fundamental problem is that you know, there's nothing wrong with being a homeowner it's, it's great to own your own home there's loads of good things about having kind of control of a place yeah, and somewhere you can live with it. yeah the problem with is expecting to be both uh, have the benefits of a homeowner the, you know, the housing service and the stability it gives you and expecting to make kind of untaxed, unearned, enormous yes. wealth gains yes. as a result. I yeah. mean, you know, we've just confused two different things, which is a kind of speculative financial investment and the need for a place to call home. I mean, while we were downstairs, I mentioned the um, the former UN Special Rapporteur for Housing, Leilani Farah, and she mm. spoke about financialization of, of property mm. when she was saying, this is now, must, must be coming up on five years ago, when she was mm. saying it was already the biggest market in the world. Yeah. Like a dwarf, oh. if, you, if you add up all of your Isaac yeah. indexes and your FTSEs yeah. and it was like four times larger than, than these things by far and the irony is of course that it's that it's a non-productive asset mm. actually a house should decline in value because it gets old and it's constant up- upkeep it doesn't mm. generate any new value at all it only we it only we only allow it to accumulate financial value by sucking that from elsewhere in the economy it's why it's so that's an inefficient way to yeah, so, uh, so, so so your house is is, is your rent seeking uh, yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it's, it is literally it is quite literally rent seeking that's why we call it rent mm. T- tell me something when you're when when you're in number 10 because I see here a lot of the fingerprints of industry all over mm. uh, new planning legislation housing yeah. policies all that kind of stuff mm. you, you can see the fingerprints of, mm. of the lobbyists uh, all over a lot of it who were the key or were there key influencers on you for example on housing policy in the UK and how did they how did they reach you um well, it's very easy to me. As, as a special advisor to the prime minister, one of your jobs is to be the person that they can reach, right? Yeah. So, um, because they're not going to get to her. So, you know, they'd literally just phone up and say, "Can we come and talk to you?" Yeah. Um, and who were the, who was like? So, from our, there was a lovely, interest, very interesting piece of work done by one of our media outlets, the Journal. We're always talking about the lobbying that goes on here, but we've seen that there's two particular industries: it's the construction industry mm-hmm. and it's IBEC. 
and they like they they they're like they overlap as well. Yes, yeah. they overlap, and they but they like for so if I have one meeting with you, they were having six, yeah. you know, and that's yeah. the kind of the ratio. Was it was was there predominantly one area that was trying to shape that policy? Um, no, not particularly. As, as I say, it was it was a pretty chaotic fourteen months. So mm. I don't know how indicative of, of normal government it was. Everyone was a bit, bit distracted. And it's only gotten worse since then, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's well, what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly stable. No, yeah. no. Yeah. and nostalgia <laughs> for the old days of chaos. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I thought at the time, God, I'm working for the most chaotic and disastrous Conservative government of all time, and now it looks like probably only the, the fourth most disastrous yeah. Conservative <laughs> government of, of, of all time. So. I'd, so I don't know how I don't know how 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 normal that was. Um, I was also a relatively unusual person within mm. that government. So I mean, I, I think quite quite a lot of those uh, lobbyists just ignored me entirely and hoped, hoped I'd go away. Um, you said ten years is what you needed, that, and that's I always because we always say that like we have we have this great plan in Ireland to to our have our mm. NHS. We call it Slonchicare. Mm. It's been sitting. It had cross party support, but it's been kind of sitting doing nothing, gathering dust for about eight years. And we said it would take 10 years to implement it. Mm-hmm. You know, but we had this, but yeah. of course, what we find is that private health insurance pushes back, different industries yeah. push back. 10 years, if if you did have that type of stability, like what what are those changes that you thought would be the big things that could be done in a 10-year cycle? I mean, to be honest, even 10 years is, is not really enough because you know, it's a kind of generational cycle. But, and if you look back over, over you know, history since the, since the, uh, well, I tend to I tend to go back to the First World War, but even yeah. if you just get back to the, the the Second World War, you know there was a period when the housing system worked pretty well. Mm. We built a lot of homes, home ownership increased, social housing increased dramatically, private renting fell, house prices were relatively stable. You know things were generally getting better on the, the housing the, front. The NHS was was created yeah, at, at the same time. Out of it, um, same we could go to. We talked mm-hmm. about Vienna all yep. the time. Red Vienna was born. Yep. All of these things happened in, and yep. they happened for a reason because people yep. saw war. Yeah, and they realised you know this was the the outside. Well, and and because the war destroyed so much value, so mm. property values were, were were on the floor, and and actually you can do an awful lot when land is cheap. Mm. Um, you know, it, it makes everything a lot more viable. Be- before you then pumped all of your borrowing and all of your earnings and distorted all of your behaviour just to you know, obsess about the property market. So mm. you know, there was a kind of pretty sweet spot for a while. Mm. This is in the fifties, yeah, and the kind of um, the fifties and sixties. And we had we had the same thing here actually. Yeah. the fifties yeah. was uh, probably Ireland's most productive time in terms of mm. public housing. Yeah, yeah without a doubt. There's there was a there was a downside, unfortunately, and it, it is, and I genuinely think this is just an accident. Mm. But it just so happened that, that that sweet spot of housing construction and kind of the the economics being being pretty sound and the the policy being pretty sound happened to coincide with a disastrous experiment in design. Mm. You know, that was when actually we, we pioneered you know, very very car based. You know, mm. mo- urban motorways. So, yeah, so we're talking proper Crap. acid urbanism. And yeah, then, so yeah. so unfortunately, we built some absolutely terrible places, which we then were still dealing with the consequences of, mm. you know, later. Um, but I gen- genuinely think that was just a coincidence, um, mm. which is you know a shame. But there you go. So, yeah, if it, I'd say if we, uh, but then when you get up to the 1970s, everything began to change between about you know 1970 and 1990. Mm. We changed to a completely different paradigm. So what are the what are the changes that happened? The, the the big one for me was actually um, the banking system. Yeah. You know, during the during, up until then, it was illegal for a bank to give you a mortgage. Yeah. I mean, 
you know why it's because we knew what will happen yeah, yeah you know we've always known banks love property it's just the easiest thing to lend on you can always go and repossess it you know what it cost what, it, what it's worth it's easy to value mm. you know it's, it's a from a kind of banker's point of view it's just the easiest kind of loan to make you can make easy money out of it lending to businesses you know, that's hard that's difficult you've got to assess how how, how likely it is to really make money you know the majority will fail anyway. yeah quite, exactly there's quite a lot of risk involved they might you know run off with the inventory you know there's, yeah. there's all sorts of risks so you don't you don't really want to do kind of annoying productive growth enhancing things like lending to businesses you just want to sit there and bang out mortgages mm. and everyone's always known that which is why we banned banks from doing that mm. because you know um it will it will starve your productive economy of of credit mm. and um you'll you'll just have property booms and guess what you know up until that point we did not have property booms because the banks weren't allowed to lend you mortgages we have the same pattern of behaviour here in the 70s banks were allowed to hand out mortgages but the, the point you make there you're starving the economy of other productive uh, you know, money investment people forget about that that yes. the more you spend on your property and your land and your housing the less money there is that you could potentially have invested in starting yeah. a new business or doing something else that was much more productive than spending it throwing it into a hole in a house yeah. which is a fine house but you know and, not uh, necessarily uh, and that's true for your household um, uh, budget because yeah. you know if you're spending fifty percent of it on on rent or mortgage, then then you you've got less money. But it's also true from the kind of macroeconomic perspective because your your credit system is is pumping all of its um, borrowing capacity into property speculation as opposed to. Yeah, business growth. Yeah. And, and we saw where that where that led Ireland. We mm. saw where it led in terms of the the crash that happened, and now we've seen that that's become. Uh, you know, I made the joke yesterday. We we were told, you know, particularly when it came to RBS, that they were too big to fail. Mm. Now we have banks that are bigger, bigger, biggest to, to fail. Like yeah. like the, the, the Silicon Valley Bank was only was only considered a small bank in the a community mm. bank in the US. Kicking around with two hundred billion, yeah, know? and it was the it's the fourteenth largest bank in the US or the seventeenth, and they yeah. call it a small bank, yeah. yeah. And, and now we're but we're at this stage whereby, you know, especially now in terms of you know urban areas, London, Dublin, um, where you're talking about affordable rents, but the rents are the building of them is predicated on those high rents. Yeah. Because those companies that and they're faced with bags of cash, let's say, they require X of return, X of a tax deal, and X of um, X of an exit strategy. Should they, you know, they want they want all sorts of uh, de-risked areas, yeah. and the Tory government, our our own government, have have given it to them mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah, very 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 largely, we are, we are you know as uh, as a as a nation as governments, we we have allowed ourselves to become completely kind of addicted to this cycle of, mm. of of speculative property increase um and then the only solution we can see is to build more um but the only way we can build more is we've decided is through the private sector and the only way you can incentive the pri- incentivize the private sector to build more is for property prices to keep rising mm. so I, I had this this kind of circular problem in government where at one point the um the civil servants had actually asked me to go over for for a meeting because they were they were desperately worried you know the government had really committed itself to building more houses that was the one thing that everyone could agree with agree on would help right mm. if we built more okay fair enough yeah, um, that was a very ambitious number and, at the time yeah 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 and and and, and because it was uh, the coalition government had gone into a kind of bidding war with itself mm. so the Tories said we'll build 250,000 homes and the liberal That's democrats correct, yeah. said no no we'll build 300,000 and yeah. so so we we still have a 300,000 home target it's a completely made up number but mm. it's just so what are they delivering every year it's, it's a lot oh, less no, yeah, no 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 we've, we've never hit it but um, but you know, it, to be honest, it doesn't really matter what the number is. It was yeah. just kind of yeah, everyone could agree you needed to build more, and it's true. All your problems are easier to solve if you're building enough. Mm. But the only way we can do that is by um, getting the private sector to, because the state has basically given up on 
on, on housing supply. Yeah. Again, since that kind of turn in the late 70s, um, you know, up to that point, a third of homes were, were built by the state year in year out mm-hmm. and in fact it really helped during the kind of um, smooth out the, the peaks and troughs of the cycle because it stops if you again it's the it's reason just, why we mentioned it's classic, earlier classic you, counter-cyclical demand right and so when the when there's a market downturn um the, the, the state builds a, bit, a few more mm-hmm. and that keeps the keeps the supply going means the the, the brickies don't lose work you mm-hmm. know just it just keeps the whole whole show on the road um but let's say the state's the state's withdrawn so the only way to build build homes now is to is for the private sector to do it the private sector will only do that if prices are rising. So the civil servants brought me in because they were terrified that house prices are softening. Mm. And I was like, why is that a bad thing? Mm. Because then we won't hit our target. But why do we want to hit our targets? Well, because we need more homes. Why do we need more homes? Because house prices are too high. <laughs> <laughs> so you just do this kind of yeah. eternal contradictory cycle of, of, of trying to keep house prices up because it's the only way to lower house prices. And there's that, there's that, the, was it Ouroboros, the snake yeah. eating itself? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But everything here, the supply of not only private housing, but also public or social housing is dependent on rising prices. And yeah. the private housing can understand why they want mm. to see rising, you know, prices. And as prices rise, they will supply the market. It doesn't work the other way around. Um, and in the public housing sphere, the council housing sphere, social mm. housing, because we've outsourced a lot of that to housing associations, mm-hmm. they, of course, borrow money to do that. And, of course, they, have, they need to have collateral there. And if prices mm-hmm. fall, um, but then you see the value of their collateral falling mm-hmm. as well so they can borrow less. So everything that we... Everything that we do and deliver here is predicated or is dependent on rising prices. Absolutely, and and you know it, it felt like a very clever solution to the problem of affordable housing, using the planning system to demand a, a contribution. In, in in England, it's called Section One Hundred Six, um, you know, inclusionary zoning, as they call it around the world. You know, it feels like a smart solution because it's 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 making the problem kind of pay for its own mm. antidote. Um, but actually, it just means that the whole system is then pro-cyclical. Because even the affordable housing is dependent on on, 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 on rising prices, yeah, so exactly, yeah. you know it, it 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 doesn't work in the long run, mm. you know, because it doesn't provide that that balance. So how do you th- how do you get rid of the profit imperative? Well, ultimately, you need house prices to not to not rise. Mm. Um, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with pro- so, there's nothing wrong with profit per se. Mm. I mean, you know, if you build a house, that's 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 hard work, right? That's, yeah, that, yeah. That, that requires resources. Of course, you should make a margin on it. Um, you know. In fact, the people who actually build houses tend to make, you know, construction firms tend to make 6% margins. That's mm. their kind of, you know, that's fair enough. Mm. The 25% that a developer makes mm. is a risk premium based on, on rent extraction. And that's that's the bit you need to get out. So it's not it's not profit per se. It's the speculative risk premium. Yeah, so that, so that we you know, need it could be land capture value. It can be yeah. all of these things where develop, the developer is doing that. I know, Lorcan, you've talked about it where, you know, we've seen it with, with our own eyes and where we've... Mm. we've objected to the building of social housing people say how can you object to the building of social housing you know, because it's it's actually it's the, the the it's not it's how is it social housing when it's 385,000 euro per unit that's not social housing you know uh, and the uh, rest yeah, yeah yeah and we're allowing you know x profit to be extracted from that when we know you know a mile from where we're sitting uh, a a non-profit developer mm. built for 210 you know? and and the interesting thing for me is that well, your story from the UK is very similar to ours, and it, it, it resonates in Australia and New Zealand and America. All the same type of liberal mm-hmm. housing market systems. When you go, I, I spent a couple of years living in Belgium, and when you go to places like Belgium, you find that they aren't, I won't say obsessed is the wrong word, but their house, their housing is not their asset. Prices go yeah. up at a much slower pace. They go up at a kind of a, a, mm-hmm. a natural rate of inflation pace. And you don't see the same... Mm-hmm. Op- 
dependency on rising prices mm-hmm. you don't see the same right you don't mm-hmm. see the same rising prices in itself and so the, the question i suppose is you know how do they get it so different to us well we started with the, with the banking system is part of it yeah mm-hmm. so that's the first one uh we've talked about the development system a bit so the way in which land is supplied into the into the development pipeline is is, is critical but there's also the at the consumer end is the tax yeah you know we countries that don't have property taxes like all of ours essentially um and we don't no, no. We, we say we do but we don't really like in the uk we have there's, there's no wealth taxes here really no, right and and, and mm. if you consider that if you make an investment in pretty much anything and it does well you will pay tax on it except for housing mm. right so guess what everyone's going to over invest in housing Come on. it's interesting when you go to those countries like they say in belgium you only get the you only see the value of your high income tax when you've put your fourth child through university for free so you see those countries where house prices are, you know, tr- trickle upwards at a very slow pace mm-hmm. are the countries where taxes tend to be higher than here, personal taxes. You know, so in other words, your taxes go to invest in free university education, mm-hmm. the equivalent of the NHS, you know, free healthcare. When you have a child in Belgium, it's free. If the child needs to see a consultant or something around it, there's no 18-month waiting list and it's free. All those kind of things happen. So their money goes, their money is invested in other ways. They see the value of of what they paid for through taxes manifests itself in free public transport in you know free healthcare free education rather than in the in the housing but it's but it's not just about the the overall tax level it's about where you get the tax from so the mm. fact that we don't tax housing wealth means of course people overinvest in it you know people forget that in in the UK we used to have an extra income tax on homeowners it was again it was abolished in the late 60s well, they, and do, they do in Switzerland yeah. the imputed rent yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. Um, but then, equal, but then it also, they also have serious restrictions on who can buy housing again you know we've, we've allowed we've made housing a, a free market um, despite the fact that it's based on land which is inherently restricted and, and, and um, limited in supply so uh, and then added kind of essentially completely liberalised um, credit creation into the mix mm. I mean, what do you expect will happen? Yeah, it's, you know, hard to, it's hard to put the smoke back into the bottle. Yeah, no, and, and, and accepting yeah. that, but then going to the to the saying, okay, now what you have is you've almost a libertarian mm. dream, right? So you've got you've got you've got credit, you've got assets, you've low taxes, and you've incentives, and then you've lobbying successfully to increase the, the incentives mm. and, the, and the and the tax breaks, and uh, and then you interna- and then you make it an international issue. Okay, so mm. people say, well, at least our domestic banks aren't uh, up to their eyeballs at the moment in, in this credit bubble. Yet the global credit bubble is is now. I think what was one of, what was the Constantine said yesterday, something like two point three trillion in in some of the U.S. banks alone is the estimated um, size of the potential losses. Should we go? Should we tip over? They're not realized losses, but they're they're potential losses. That's that's the sort of stuff that that puts the drives the global economy into uh, into a dip. But you were saying there's in that crisis there's a opportunity. <laughs> Well, I, in in a housing market downturn, and you know, I, I, I'm I'm always predicting a housing market crash, and I'm <laughs> I'm, almost al- right. <laughs> I'm almost always wrong, but I'm not changing I'm not I'm not changing the prediction now. So, in a, in a market downturn, you do have an opportunity to to rebase prices and to keep them down, mm. um, if you take it uh, uh, with policy. And unfortunately, we tend to just try and reflate it as quickly as possible normally. But you know, um, in the '90s when there was a serious housing market, that was the last time I had a real housing market downturn affordability ratios actually got back to where they had been in 1970 really yeah despite that was our third kind of boom bust cycle and yeah, you know, the, the, the boom and bust is, is damaging and stupid and we you know, we should we should design policies so that you don't have that cycle but at the very least it did get back to where where it had started yeah, we've now entered a, a different and even worse pattern where you get the boom without the bust 
right so you get boom stagnation boom stagnation um and that's and that really is the worst of all possible worlds well it's because uh, as they've said that like they, they've decided after 2008 they were just they didn't want to risk yeah. that happening again so they was to throw everything at it yeah. again yeah. but in the meantime we're throwing we're seeing this high interest rate environment and we're seeing all of these other issues emerge that are actually um created by the system of mm -hmm. trying to stop the dreaded contagion or, or put you know put paid to that if um if someone was to turn around to you and say well uh you know um Keir Starmer's now elected uh the the so we're going we're going to have a, and again I'm going to say this for, for Lorcan you, you guys can distance yourself from this so a slightly less Tory government come into power right <laughs> um, would you go back again I know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a housing advisor. If people want advice, I'm happy to give it to anyone. Yeah, and and would you think you've got learnings that you'd uh, from the last time that you'd you'd change some of the things you've done? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I stand by the my, my choices last time, which was that you know just went for s small, quick things that you could do in mm. a hurry because there just wasn't the space to do bigger things. But if you got a new government coming in with a kind of a longer term vision and you know planning to be there for ten years, yeah, you'd want to go right back to to, to the 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 fundamental issues deal with the tax deal with the planning system deal with the um the the you know the the banking would you get aspects get get the state building yeah absolutely and and get a critic well get the state building but critically into into land supply mm. yeah, that's the really missing piece on 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 the supply are side are you short of land in the UK because well, there's a lot of talk here about how short we are of land and zone land but yet the last survey that I looked at from the Department of Housing it's about six years old now. We have capacity here. We've zoned land for something like 400,000, 414,000 houses. So there doesn't seem to be a shortage of land. Is land in short supply in the UK? Can, can I give you an annoying kind of wonky answer to that? Because it's, yeah. it's a yes and no. Yeah. And obviously land is it's ultimately... It's a political answer. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously land is fundamentally limited, right? You, they're not making it anymore. It's so, so yeah, you're, you're, but you will always be in conditions of, 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 of absolute scarcity of land, and particularly of the right bits of land. So it's all very well saying, well, there's acres of, of unused land. Yeah, but you're not going to build housing in most of it. It's the wrong place. The, the, the valuable bits of land that I'm talking about. The valuable bits of land are always going to be in, in scarce supply. It's, it's inherent in the nature of land. So, so yes, there is a, uh, it is inherently scarce. That said, there's no particular shortage of it. In the UK, we have um, 1% of the UK is uh, um, has housing on it. One percent, you know, seventy yeah. percent of its agriculture. It's um, we use more. We use more land in the in in England for um, golf courses than we do for homes. So you know, there's there's no absolute shortage of space. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, so well, like that's when you put that in context like that. Like we know, I think one of the statistics we saw, uh, you know, Mel famously talks is between the canals enough enough land, zoned land for right. something like fourteen and a half thousand units, yeah. just just in, in the that, city centre. That's yeah. Dublin city centre. Yeah. You know, so so yeah. we don't have that yeah. real shortage. One thing I'd like to get to though is the idea, and I saw you were sharing it yourself online, um, and one of the threads you shared had loads of headlines about. Um, we, we need to change everything because we're losing landlords are evaporating and the houses once they sell them obviously we know Lorcan houses fall over once a landlord sells them they disappear um, yeah. Yeah. what the, the, the music on that because it's so so topical here at the moment mm -hmm. where, where we're standing because we spoke with the eviction man at the yeah. outset what's happening in terms of renters nowhere to go and the fear that we're losing this stock and mm -hmm. maybe Lorcan you might comment on that but how do you like? Are you up against? Is that a, is that a media infrastructure? Is that a business infrastructure, finance infrastructure, or is it just the fact that people, you know, we take the simplest headline and we run with it because you're saying it doesn't stacks don't bear that out. 
No, I, as, as you say, it's, it's just a, it's an oversimplification. You know, we have exactly the same issue in in the UK that uh, any suggestion of improving conditions in the private rented sector through regulation and you know, landlords are up in arms. Oh, we'll all leave the sector and and mm. obviously we'll burn down the houses and everyone will be homeless. And you know, obviously it's mad if if landlords leave being a landlord it means that they sell to somebody right um, mm. and they either sell to someone who wants to be a landlord under those conditions or, or to an owner occupier e- either way you know the yeah. house is going to get used so um it's it's a kind of it's, it's a false fear what i think actually is more serious and we're seeing a lot of this in the uk is that uh is that they find other ways to be landlords which are even more exploitative and, and socially damaging so we're seeing a huge rise in short lets mm. so they they, they, yeah. they flip the property into um you know airbnb or nightly paid homeless accommodation or you know all these other forms of of even less regulated mm. um renting which can be even worse for the community as a whole so you know regulation needs to be more than just beating up landlords it needs to be um making sure that we're, we're pushing property into the most beneficial forms yeah rather than the most profitable yeah. into yeah. the most in the most societally yeah. beneficial yeah. forms and we have yeah. like we've we've i hate to pick on him but i always do there's like one of the, there's a guy that there's a just finished up as a ga coach of an inter-county team for a number of years and has emergency accommodation all over, all over dublin making vast mm. fortunes of money that dublin inquirer have written about and people are going into these emergency accommodation units and finding there's like there's not adequate fire escapes there's not uh, yeah. you know all of yeah. these corners have been cut but because it's emergency accommodation it's not only the the, mm-hmm. the individual who has that we see some of the large funds here <laughs> in dublin who where, where we changed the planning system to facilitate some of these large mm-hmm. international funds and lower standards so that they would come in and and build, you know, what it turned out to be very expensive rental accommodation. They're using it for short-term lets instead yeah. of what it was designed for and what we changed the system for. Goldman Sachs have four different companies, different different names on different funds in Ireland that are ultimately lead back to Goldman Sachs. That are all four of them have in one part of their portfolio emergency accommodation, albeit for whether it's homelessness, whether it's refugee mm-hmm. accommodation, or whether it's and you're just thinking to yourself, mm-hmm. going, you know, that's the faceless bag of cash. You just got to follow the money. There was one eviction that took place because they were transferring the use mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. you know, a, a rental house to an emergency accommodation. And when we followed the money back, it turned out, hey, oh, wow, it's Goldman Sachs. <laughs> there's, one, one, there's, a, there's a real estate <laughs> investment trust that um, there's a whole uh, handful of them that have been, that have spotted a bunch of loopholes, essentially, and mm-hmm. have been buying up um, supported housing uh, and then exploiting the benefit system because it's the, it's the one bit of housing benefit that isn't capped in, mm. in, in England anymore. You do that in, um, in Denmark as well, and the Danes had to change the legislation to stop them doing that. When I speak at, at conferences in, in London, places, the Landlords Association invariably have the same the same lines as they do here, you know, increase regulation and, and out we go and all that. About a third of the properties that, that are being sold by landlords at the moment end up back as other rental accommodation. But what you find if you look at a, a kind of you take a European uh, perspective is that the most regulated markets are also the ones with the highest proportion of the, of, of okay. rental accommodation yeah. so Denmark yeah. Switzerland Germany yeah. and they're the most regulated yeah. and have the strongest tenant rights and you don't see any shortage of landlords in those countries okay. so the idea yeah. that they, they'd flee here because of regulation it's you know they'd flee here if their income goes uh, mm-hmm. but not necessarily regulation Toby yeah. the last kind of idea now mm-hmm. is, is that a, and it's only because last week we spoke to the vice deputy leader of the Socialist Party in Portugal, who are the party of government, mm-hmm. right? And they've come out with these ambitious plans that has caused everybody to go, communists! And one of the things they're talking about is, you know, again, Airbnb, the likes of that, limiting the, the use of that, making sure that these come back to into the market. 
the kind of use it or lose it tax, you know, after and they're giving mm-hmm. people six months to, uh, if there's genuine needs, you know, maybe it's a family issue or something, that's fine. They can all be extended. The idea then, but, and they, they're not immune. Like they have had, they've had one of their big successes is their economy has done so well that it's actually uh, created that influx of people. Like yep. their, their population is up substantially. Mm-hmm. Their the demand for properties up, their rents are high, but they're now saying for the likes of it, if you're that landlord, and you and you or or you have that property, we'll buy it off you, and we'll and once you agree to sell to us, we'll give you the, the capital gains tax uh, will be wiped as opposed to selling to right. a faceless bag of cash, and then you can and we will rent it then as, mm-hmm. as cost rental. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those sort of ideas and how brave you know that, does that sound brave or does that sound revolutionary or just sensible? No, it just sounds sensible to be honest. It's not it's not particularly revolutionary. It's just it's just a. a you know, a, a sensible way of, the, of of getting more property into into public ownership as opposed to uh, market ownership, and you know, there's plenty of e- relatively quick ways for the public authorities to acquire housing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I really like what they're doing in Barcelona now. They have a they have a preemption right mm-hmm. for 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 housing in Barcelona. So, when whenever any property is sold, you know, you have to go and get the get it registered, and at that point, the state has the right to say, the mayor has the right to say, actually, you're not selling it to, to mm-hmm. that company. I'll buy it at that same price. So, so it's still the market price. There's yeah, no yeah. kind of interference in the market mechanism. So the seller doesn't care because they, they're, they're getting, getting their money. In the same way. Now the buyer might be annoyed, but mm. you know, this is the way that this is a way for the, the government to both acquire new, um, property for social renting or, or well, whatever, but, look, I mean, but also we're stopping it going to the wrong people. Yeah. They can say, actually, I don't want you hoovering up another, um, 20 properties on that street. Here, you know? we're, we're very weak. We have, we have a written constitution here and there's, you know, article 43 mm-hmm. the, yeah. about the right to own property and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, we have another article in the constitution about the, the, the public need, good, the, the rights, private rights can be overridden for in the, in the common good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That bit always gets ignored. Yeah. And well, we, the, well look, it's funny because our government will tell us we don't want, we can't have this it's not eviction ban. It's a temporary moratorium yeah. on on no, 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 so, 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 Even the Conservative government in in, in the UK is is finally getting round to a banning no fault evictions. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's the Wild West. The rental sector, in my experience yeah. over of living and doing things in the UK, the rental sector has always been a bit of a Wild yeah. West for from the agents level kind of and the legislation and the rights and things like that. To and and look, looking at the history, England is is actually had. You know, for, for a country that isn't always that, that extreme in, in things, it's had, it, the, it's had the most heavily regulated private rental sector of anywhere at some points, and it now has the least. That's what I was going to say. Of anywhere in the world. Yeah. And that's kind of polarized the debate. It means that people kind of forget that actually most places on earth have a regulated system that's somewhere in between. It's a yeah. bit more sensible. Yeah. But, it, but in, in England, it, we seem to only imagine either total wild west yeah. or a kind of yeah. Scotland c- are, are pretty, Scotland and ourselves are pretty much you know we follow a bit of what they do and mm. they kind of copy a little bit of what yeah. we do and they're kind of probably in, a, in that happy medium yeah. ground yeah mm. I, have, I have a table in work that I use in one of the lectures showing how regulated mm. different jurisdictions are yeah Ireland and England are definitely not up there amongst the most regulated by a long shot we are moving up the chart um, which is no harm maybe mm-hmm. um, but England is yeah and, and my own personal experience as, uh, of living there and you know the, the the way things happen particularly with the state agents and letting agents is, it just wouldn't be acceptable here but it's, and it's relatively recent it was only 1988 when you know when the Program sector in England was was deregulated again. It's part of that that big turn. It started with the, with the banking, but yep. by, but nineteen eighty eight was the, kind of the end of that process, mm. and we still live in the world that was created in that 
deregulatory moment. The, the late but, 80s, 87, 88 here and in the UK were very much a turning point. It was just when, you know, you got your Thatcher and your mm-hmm. Reagan and there the ideologies began to, mm-hmm. it's, it's to seek through and find a voice in policy. Uh, you know what I mean? Their, their ideology became action in policy, and it was that late eighties period here as well, uh, and, and and in England that that the, their, their, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thinking became written down in actual policy and legislation. I whisper it because people say I actually saw a political editor recently in an Irish national newspaper. Uh, put neoliberalism in uh, in in inverted commas, and I thought to myself, "That's really, really strange. Mm. <laughs> That's really strange." You know, mm. they'd have no problem saying socialism flat mm. out, but apparently mm. neoliberalism doesn't really exist. It's kind of airy fairy. Mm. Well, anyway, yeah. Toby, very, very last thing now. Then, so you're going to go talk, do this talk this evening. Do you feel that there is a change that you within the wider housing idea of, of moving away from model of financialization? Do you think that that's because the, the, we often say I believe change comes gra- comes bottom up, not top down. Mm-hmm. Quite often, do, do you think that that change is actually is starting to filter through? I'm I'm hopeful, if not necessarily optimistic. I think you know we've been talking about that that turn in the 80s i think there there is definitely the possibility of a of a similar kind of turn now mm. because the demographics and the economics have just feel like they're reaching a tipping point yeah but you know i've been around this game too long to be confident that it's going to happen anytime soon on that cheery note, uh, <laughs> he's even less cheery than me. Yeah, yeah, no, it's like the team of two Doctor Dooms. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Uh, just to let listeners know, we will also be back tomorrow. St John's Ambulance. Jeez, it's very grim today. St John's Ambulance are publishing a report into childhood sexual abuse that took place uh, historically to a number of uh, individuals and we'll be talking to Mick Finnegan who was one of the campaigners that brought that to light uh, after the report is published so yeah more more, um, more dick darkness and grimness but anyway thanks for listening folks we really appreciate it we'll talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Echo Chamber podcast Subscribe now on page.